One, two, ten. Welcome to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast, coming on you with insights into what it's really like to be in a do-it-yourself metal band in 2014. Who is it? You're listening to the Claim the Throne Blodgecast. Good morning, Vietnam. <laughs> with Cabba and Ash and our good mate, Skitsy. Here having a gentle yarn after a couple of big shows with King Parrot in Perth. Yep. How you doing, Skits? Good, mate. Yourself? Pretty bloody good for a Sunday morning. <laughs> it is Sunday morning. In the uh, beautiful backyards of the Craigie suburbs. <laughs> Couldn't be better. We're, yeah, very honoured to be with Skits today. He's um, been in some very many legendary bands of the Aussie metal scene. He's been around for a while and done heaps of awesome things. So thanks for your valuable time and giving that to us. What a good cunt. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you wouldn't mind just perhaps um, telling everyone a bit about yourself and what you've been doing over the last 20 or 30 years and yeah, who you've been playing with and um, what's been going on. Okay. Well, this is the 27th year of hitting the skins. So I started in 1988 at school. I just turned 15. I was three at that time. You were three. <laughs> Precious age. <laughs> And um, I got into, I was into the metal, but um, just gradually got into the actual playing side of it by um, doing a few lessons at school, did jazz band at school, um, did theory, did all that sort of stuff, and then started to teach myself how to take on uh, double kick and thrash metal and all those other styles associated drumming wise with um metal so just started buying vinyl slow down the vinyl on the turntable listen to the double kicking and the blast beating and the how the rolls were executed just gradually did it like that really shit what's an idea because basically at that time like there was no internet there was no like to get a lesson lessons to play metal you actually had to find a metal drummer, but there wasn't really that sort of access back then. Like it was just, it was in its primitive sort of stages and people didn't really even know what double kicking was. Like in Ballarat, it was sort of like uh, metalheads knew what it was all about, but to actually play it was a different thing. And there wasn't really any metal drummers around either. So mm. I had nowhere at that time with my resources or anything like that at my age so I just took on my own idea of this is how I'm going to do it, whatever it takes. I actually asked the drum teacher at school and he said that he had no idea. I played him some Slayer and Metallica and he just said, I don't know <laughs> anything about this type of drumming and basically you're just going to have to try and find someone or do it yourself. So I just did it myself. I quit school at uh, the end of that year, end of 88. Just got straight into it. I just started going nuts on the uh, double kicking and the trying to get all these different techniques together. And I just sort of developed my own sort of thing eventually, like through listening to uh, different influences in the bands that I was right into at the time. And then I just started listening to all these new bands, um, you know, like the Florida Death Metal um, Deicide, Morbid Angel, Cannibal Corpse, Atheist, um, and then that's when all the blast beating, <clears throat> like Old as the Madness was probably the, the, the turning point, because it's like that album is just like 
cutting edge blast beating and just total mayhem. Like mm. it was just like this is what I really want to do. So I just took it from there. And that's it really and, and basically since um I developed that style which was what damaged did started doing like in uh early eighty nine was the first time the band formed. And it took a while to actually get a style levelled out to the way it sort of became. It wasn't really even something that was conscious. It was just just happened like that. Mm. So damaged, did that for 15 years. But then there's been like a ton of other stuff like um, associations with bands like um, Abremelin, Blood Duster, um, Sadistic Execution, which was the European tour with um, Absu and... Uh, Impal Nazarene in 95, which was pretty out of control, by the way. Um, <laughs> we'll get to that for sure. Yeah, that's that's another entirely different story by itself, really. But um, Sad X and um, bands like that really sort of developed things about my drumming and just like the sort of, sort of things that um, I'm still sort of doing today. But like it was like education, really. Because every band's got its own sort of take on how they do things. There's similarities, obviously, but then there's also how bands write their their songs or sort of implement uh, different time signatures and things like that that I was, like, picking up on and developing. And it was it – was, it's like going to school, except for you playing extreme metal. <laughs> yeah, death metal school. And you're learning, you're learning how to deal with situations and people and tour and all sorts of other carnage. But um, there's been so many bands and there's been so many recordings and projects and things that I guess specifically that um, some are probably more important because of what it sort of, how it developed or what ended up happening with it. <clears throat> there's, yeah, there's, there's stuff like I did projects with... Um, Guys from Sunno and Attila from Mayhem, which was um, Grave Temple, and we did two albums. Did a live album um, in France in 2008, and we did a studio album that same year. Did a mini European tour, and that was just stuff like that where I just got called out of the blue and just they asked whether I'd do it, and I was like, well... Yeah, that sort of <laughs> seems like appropriate sort of thing for me to do. And I didn't think that I'd be doing stuff with people that calibre. But I guess it's all just pretty much about being able to put yourself out there and just do different things rather than just stick to the same constant sort of idea that it's, you know, you need to do things to change your ideas and perceptions about it all. So did you sort of put yourself out there as like, I'm capable of playing all this shit if you want me to fill in for you? Or did people just sort of call on you, like knowing that you're a good drummer and damaged? Um, How how did all that start snowballing? Well, I just started doing stuff like, um, I did these experimental noise nights, Mm -hmm. just with these randoms. Um, Like, I actually can't even really remember the names of the people that I actually played with but there's a scene that does all that sort of um extreme uh 
noise experiment type stuff, which is quite bizarre. It's, it's more like just rocking up and playing. You don't really know what the whole idea of it is until you actually get there and you start actually doing it. And some of these bands, they're like, uh, we've got a plan and this is how we want to do it. You just stick to sort of like a basic plan and you build things up and then you have like a slow sections and fast sections, stuff like that. So it seemed pretty sort of natural and normal to me anyway because I could sit there like most musicians could and just jam with anybody that's got that sort of idea in their head and you just do it on the spot really. So, And that's what Grave Temple was. The music wasn't written. It was just planned. So they had a, they had this whole thing where they sort of said, oh, we're going to build this up to this, then do this section sort of like this. Then you have like more extreme parts and more s- slow parts and more parts where it's just sort of open. And I don't know. It's weird. It's, it's, it's like just interpreting the music while you're there in front of an audience and just make it work, which is probably one of the weirdest sort of things that I've done, but it works. We did a live album out of it and that worked out fine. It was just, um, yeah, just something different. And just, just to be able to work with people that have been doing stuff for a long, long time and been doing it on an international level and seeing how professional they are like how they operate and make everything really streamlined and pretty easy to be able to to do it, like not hard or difficult at all. It was more enjoyable because it was like, yeah, you're there to have fun rather than, you know, this is like really serious, got to be worried about how this is going to roll sort of deal, you know. Some bands obviously depends, as you probably well aware of different situations different musicians different outcomes <clears throat> really but there's so many there's so many bands and like a lot of black metal and underground type stuff I've done like projects I've done like Cemetery Urn the first album Urn of Blood and that was that's with the uh, singer that was in Bestie Wallace Damon things like uh, Funerary Pit which was like a seven-inch EP with Ryan from um, Gospel of the Horns. A new thing that's coming out, Mutilate Him, which is like a suicide black metal. It's coming out on uh, a label in Germany, um, Darker Than Black, and uh, just all sorts of stuff like that. Um, Insidious Torture, which was an offshoot from Terrorist, just extreme death metal stuff. Um Severed Records from New York put that out and Terrorist was like a band that we did for like four years or something like that until it sort of, I don't know, run its course, I guess. Um, then there's Walk the Earth, which was with Jamie from Damaged and a couple other guys. Um, that was around for a couple of years. That was different again, like had totally different ideas and totally different music, but... It's all relative to just what you're doing at the time. Like, it doesn't have to all be one particular thing or idea, but uh, extreme metal, like black and death metal, would probably be one of the definite preferences 
towards what I've done as far as music's concerned. Yeah. Grindcore, death metal, black metal, thrash metal. Yeah, I haven't I haven't played in a power metal band yet. Oh, that's one to tick off the list. <laughs> Wait for that call from Jim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that one. So, um, you mentioned the Statistic Execution Euro Tour that you did. Yes. Um, we might get onto that a bit. How does a band from Australia back then tee something like that up? How, how did they sort of take off and, and get so big over there? Well, SatX had this cult thing going on, I guess, even in Europe and overseas like for a long time, like bands like Mayhem and... Uh, all those uh, Norwegian black metal bands knew who Sadistic Execution were back in the late 80s. And um, so there was like this sort of underground thing going on. Uh, and then Osmos Records signed the band. And Osmos is based in France. And um, they're the ones that had signed a lot of bands at that time. Like they signed uh, Marduk. Um, and Impaled Nazarene, of course, and heaps of other black and more more black metal, I guess, bands at the time, Blasphemy and um, oh, tons of stuff. But they got onto that. They did We Are Death, Fuck You, and they bought that album out. I think that was 94 that came out. And then they asked them to do the tour, and Sloth who plays drums, who played drums in sadistic execution the whole time, decided he wasn't going to do it. So the next thing was is um, I did this show with Damage and sadistic execution played it and Chris Hades came and approached me and just asked me to do the tour. So I said yes and like within, I think we had like about maybe six months to prepare for it, learn all the songs do a couple of shows in Australia, go to Europe and do the tour with Absu and Impaled Nazarene. And <laughs> it was pretty full on. Bit of calm your farm. Yeah. Um, there was no calming of any farm on that tour. That was <laughs> that was the most uncalm tour I've ever been part of um, mentally, physically. Um, the whole thing was just like, this is uh, totally... Insane. How many like, shows was that? It was like fourteen shows or thirteen shows in a row. Yeah. It was it was just bang bang done. And pretty big turnouts and everything. Pretty wild. Um some of the shows there would have been about say eight hundred, like at the bigger ones, and the smaller ones would have been maybe two hundred, something like that. They were pretty good turnouts. Like Germany was the main part of the, the shows, like there's probably about half the shows were Germany. And the rest were um, places like France and um, Belgium and Holland and Italy as mm. well. Yeah. Like yeah. Rome. Played in Rome and there was about probably 800 players or something Fuck. like that. It was pretty good. It was around the corner from the Vatican, <laughs> which has made it even more significant, I yeah. guess, to the cause sure. of um, blasphemous black death metal and stuff like that. But it was um, it was a fair experience. Yeah, from the punch on on the bus, um, to the wanking competition, <laughs> um, to uh, various other um, activities that that went on around that tour. Yeah, it was rather uh, intense. 
I mean, obviously, at the moment with King Parrot, you guys are touring pretty relentlessly. Is it, I guess, different these days, touring? And, I mean, yeah, a lot of the King Parrot stuff's been national. Was there a lot of national touring for you back then as well? Um, damaged. Damaged did lots of shows through the 90s, like lots of interstate shows. Um, we didn't come to Perth. We only The only time we came to Perth was with Entomb, though. Because at the time the cost, the cost to get to the the band to Perth was ridiculous. It was thousands of dollars. It was mm. like, how can we afford to do that? But we did lots of like runs up to um, Brisbane, Gold Coast, um, tons of shows in Sydney, Adelaide, tons of shows in Melbourne. Went to Tassie a couple of times. There was there was quite a few trips over a lot of years. Like damage did a lot of uh, a lot of stuff for probably a good out of the fifteen years that it ran, probably a good ten years of it was pretty That's out there doing it. Yeah, like just playing lots of shows. Um, how was the scene and stuff back then? Like a lot of a lot of the classic Australian metal bands are pretty, you know, tongue in cheek, pull the piss out of the the mainstream stuff. Yeah. And you know, we were saying if we bumped into someone now, uh, I don't know birds of tokyos or something or your gyroscopes and you mentioned that you were doing this there'd yeah. be a camaraderie there i yeah. think it's grown together but how was it in the past like did you ever have any contact with mainstream dudes back then um the most mainstream band i think that like we had any contact with at that time was spider bait before they got big and like massively signed or whatever and became like internationally known like, I remember when Spiderbait was just playing, like, pub shows and stuff like that, and it was sort of, yeah, it was normal. It was, like, the early 90s back then, and Damage played with bands like The Meanies, um, played a gig with Cosmic Psychos, Hard-Ons, bands like that, um, Crossbait, then you'd play with Course Molestation, and it was just... There was no sort of like, uh, I guess there was differentiations between scenes, but there wasn't so much of a divided type of genre, like specific thing where you go to a gig and it's just a, a bunch of death metal bands or it's just a bunch of traditional metal or it was like a mixed lineup type scenario where you play with like an industrial type band a death metal band and an indie rock type band or something, you know, like it was just way different. Was and it better or what do you I thought it was about? cool because you actually like uh, getting people to hear music that they'd probably never hear before and that's where I think Damage was like crossing over from just being purely about playing metal gigs to actually like doing it with a whole ton of different styles and different different other um genres and stuff so it wasn't specific to just play with metal bands but there was obviously a lot of those gigs you know like play gigs with like a bremelin and blood duster and necrotomy and all those bands are awesome you know like doing gigs with those bands it was always really well attended and there was tons of tons of metalheads like they were into underground metal you know like 
there was a lot of Australian support going on at that time. I don't know if that's. I think I feel. I feel like it's changed a lot, specifically when the internet and all the companies that were bringing out um, a lot of bands, and the fact that there's just so many bands touring now. So I don't know, but that was um, in the nineties. It was going off. It was like pretty good, popular Australian underground music. Well, to to that degree, to be able to see that many people turn up to see bands like that as compared to now trying to get people to see some Aussie bands, it's like, it seems like it sort of took a bit of a slide. Like you say, there's just so many tours now, you might get, you know, options to five or six different gigs in one weekend, you're not going to make it to all of them. No, it's um, a bit much and the money factor's not exactly like, people will specifically go for one band or they're not going to yeah. have... The money to go and see like every one of those bands, which I totally understand. It's just uh market is just full on these days. Like there's more bands now than there was way like back in the nineties. I think, I believe, totally. And the access to it through the internet, downloads and all that sort of stuff, it's sort of taken away some of the magic, I believe. For sure. And do you notice any differences, I guess, with the bands these days or the younger bands? in terms of even, like, style or performance or promotion? I mean, is, is there anything in particular you'd notice that's way different than it used to be that might be contributing to it all? Um, I reckon that that whole, like, 90s or 80s, 90s, um, early 2000s idea of you go out and you promote your gigs, um, doing your hand flyers and uh, posting stuff up on polls and, and going to radio stations and getting an interview, which obviously bands do all the time, but I don't think the underground, like the way it used to be promoted without the internet, without any of that stuff, doing it purely off your own um, initiative. Like you had to go out and you had to make people find out about the gigs. Somehow street press was pretty good for that interviews and and doing all that stuff on radio and stuff like that but you still had to go out and you had to go to all these different shops talk to people and put flyers up and do all this stuff without any uh internet and i think internet is used for everything now like everybody finds out about everything on the internet but i also wonder if it's oversaturated like facebook because you get like a million invites to a million different gigs and then people forget about just ignore, specific yeah. things so then it's not as it's not as um doesn't seem as uh Im- important maybe i find with facebook as well i mean you you put your gig up on there but you're not only competing against other bands you're competing against anything that's happening on facebook like a funny cat video with sticky <laughs> tape on their feet you know if that if that's getting heaps of views then your shit just drops to the end no one sees it and when bands are relying purely on facebook for their gig yeah just gets a bit hard for people to even find out about it sometimes yeah i think maybe that facebook is sort of like it's good and it's it's sort of counterproductive in a way as well because there's just so much information on there so people are constantly being bombarded with useless amounts of information and there's just too much to deal with really did you used to get into all the tape trading and all that kind of stuff back in the day Oh, there was a little bit of that, like, um, yeah, there was a few, like, earlier on, early 90s and stuff like that, 
after that, I think it started to change um, gradually towards what we're just talking about, really. And the fact that when you're so busy just concentrating on your own band, it just gets focused straight on the writing and the recording and gigging becomes more important, I guess. Like trying to get your band to do things that you didn't think were possible, gradually build it up and, I don't know, a lot of years' work, really, like to try and do that. When we started out, because work that yourself and all the Australian metal scene had done, we could think of things like getting label support and stuff like that. And um, yeah, for you, with not much money going into metal back in the day, like how was recording and stuff? Like, were you a lot of home DIY stuff or um, um, big studios? How did that sort of work? We uh, we had a guy that wanted to manage the band. Like, as soon as we pretty much hit Melbourne in 92 and said he'll put the money together to put the first album out, Do Not Spit. And so he put up, like, I think it was about six grand and recorded that whole album for six grand. And I think the amount of time that was spent in the studio to do that album, I think we were in the studio for one full month. Really? Like, the, the drums and the guitars and stuff seemed to be tracked really quickly i think i did the drums in about two days but the mixing and uh, all the other parts and uh we had some conflict with the engineer mm-hmm. and he wanted to cut out all these he wanted to, wanted to do edits on the kick drums he wanted to take like 60 percent of the kick drums out i said well if you take that out you totally take away what this band what i'm trying to do with this band and how it's represented it's meant to have all those kick drums it's meant to be like that you can't do that so we had some conflict about guitar sounds we had conflict about the drums we had conflict about everything nearly was that because you guys were like approaching someone who hadn't really done much metal before well he actually had oh he had yeah he'd done like um i don't know you you probably would have heard of mass confusion thrash metal band from 80s and early 90s from Melbourne. He'd done Mass Confusion. He'd done Hobbs Angel of Death, um, demos. He'd done uh, Mortification albums. He'd done um, Anatomy, Blood Duster's first album. He ended up doing a lot of Blood Duster stuff, Doug Saunders. and uh, So he knew what, what the metal was all about. He just didn't agree with how it, was, how it sounded to him. So... I don't actually think he was actually into metal. I just think that he knew how to record it. Like he had the gear, the pro tools and all this sort of stuff to actually make those albums the way they sound. And Blood Duster ended up doing a few things with Doug um, over the years from the early 90s on. So he did a good job. He just, he had his opinions and everyone else had their opinion. It's always one of those things in the studio whether it be with band members or with the engineer about how an idea or how the recording is sounding and the way the drums or the guitars or whatever it is, like the production, and um, and just basically trying to compromise somehow or no compromise at all and basically someone walks out the door basically to not deal with it anymore. So, yeah. 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 Come in. Yes, please. Can you make me an Earl Grey, please, with one sugar? <laughs> Sh- right, 
Milk, please. <laughs> well, that's just beautiful to see. Bands offering <coughs> each other Earl Grey tea. <laughs> um, while we're on recording, you've obviously had a lot of experience, I guess, now with um, track and drums. But So do you have any sort of particular tips for drummers going into the studio, um, you know, even in regards to being suitably prepared for it and, and that I sort do. of thing? I do have a few, actually. Because Give it to us. When I first started recording, I was uh, super nervous about it. I used to basically get super tense, and that doesn't help the drumming. It makes it harder, and the harder it is, the more you stress, and when the stress kicks in, then it becomes hell. And like for the first few recordings I did, like over the first few years, every time I'd go to record, I had the same weird feeling about it, like I hated it. Just wanted to get it done, finished, over and, over, over and done with so I didn't have to deal with it anymore. And I think that was totally wrong because once I realised that you don't have to actually stress out, it's just you, you're going to make the track work eventually somehow. You can't be thinking about mistakes and being overly conscious about all that stuff. You just go in there and play like you're playing a gig. Just that mentality like, yeah, I'm having fun. This is going to go off. And obviously it's not going to be cut and dry like that. But some of those albums where I went in with that idea, I basically tracked everything like within no time at all. Or some of the quickest albums I've ever done, but the best results I ever had too. So um, I guess it's difficult because everybody's got a completely different mindset as far as recording and how they prepare and what they do and if they've got a ritual or they have to like take some sedatives or <laughs> drink or i don't know but i i never drank before i played ever uh in a studio that's counterproductive you run out of energy pretty quick uh so i wouldn't suggest drinking or taking drugs before you record not unless you're that sort of band not unless that's the sort of effect that you want but um for extreme metal just Try not to be too analytical about it and just go in there with a mind of just smash it through and like a gig, really. I think that's the best way to do it. Some of the albums where I did that were just, it was so way more enjoyable. Like just, and not being nervous about it. That's hard not to do though, because as soon as the, you put the headphones on and they, they go, all right, the guitarist is standing there, the engineer's in the other room. And they just go right rolling and you're like, okay. And th that whole, it's almost like a panic thing hits you sometimes. And you're like, ah, oh, shit. I've got to record this and I've got to make it the best I possibly can. So, But some of the damage stuff I did, I'm not happy about. Like I'll look back on it and go, oh, I wish I could have done that way better now. See, that's crazy because most of the Damage albums are like those landmark albums as far as Aussie metal drumming goes. Yeah, I just I still feel weird about it, you know? Like there's just little bits and pieces here and there that I wish that I'd changed or done differently. But you can't really spend too much time thinking about that. It is what it is and it's done and it's in the past and what can you do? Don't get bitter, get better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. And a lot of those bands these days that have like tried to re-record their earlier works now that they're big with like Wicked Production, 
changes they, dynamics. Yeah, they play to a click track or something. They have different production and it's just sonically you might be able to hear everything a bit more. But, you know, could you imagine Altars of Madness recorded now? No. Nah. <laughs> no, nah, they'd destroy it. They would totally destroy it. Um, One Earl Grey tea coming I've, up. I've, I've heard a lot of bands. Thank you, sir. Peppermint well, sucks. <laughs> well, that fucking sucks. Um, <laughs> but I would say, um, what was I talking about? Uh, re-recording more. Re-recording. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. It's like a lot of those bands that re-record their songs, they become all slick and clinical, and I don't know. Doesn't have the same original vibe that's created that sort of whatever it is, whether it be dark or ambient or a mixture of all those things, I guess. Like, you hear those albums and the reason why you liked it is because of that production. Like, the way the drums sound on Alders, Alders of Madness is perfect. I would, you wouldn't change that. I wouldn't. The toms, the snare, the, the whole thing. It's perfect. So, I don't understand all this, like... Overly slick production, I think, which I would call like a a roadrunner type thing with Devil Driver. I call it like it's like a Devil Driver <laughs> syndrome. All the albums, all the bands, they've got the same drum sounds, they've got the same producers, they've got the same guitar sounds. It's like a carbon copy. There's no individualism, I don't think. Oh, that's just my opinion. Like they, those bands are good players. They're awesome what they do. They write good songs or whatever but the sounds are just the same every time there's no real changing of like that seems clinical and like a bit like lacking of like some sort of depth and character character darkness whatever you want to whatever sort of things you're looking for but yeah that's something that i just think just totally takes all that away and just becomes this one-dimensional type Mm. Yeah, that's a nice recording. The drum sounds are great, but there's 50 other albums that sound exactly the same. Strange. I always found, like, with a lot of the early metal that I liked, I didn't know it then, but now knowing a bit more about drumming and all the electronics and stuff, you know, they might have been done just everything, acoustic triggers on the kit. Yeah. And they've used the sounds of an old Elise module or something. Yeah. But it still sounds wickedly human. It's not like they've quantized that trigger sound afterwards it's just that's just all they could afford you get a bit of the natural drum sound in the overheads and the, the natural yeah singers. and then there's other stuff that they did do it just mics but they couldn't afford a good room or a good anything but and they both sort of sound the same to me like just yeah. real raw natural performances mm. nothing too overdone whereas these days like you say like when you can download the devil driver kick drum sound off the internet and <laughs> yeah. use it. Like, Drums from hell type yeah. programs, Meshuggah type stuff. Once you get control over all that stuff, then the the thing is for people to then go a bit too far with it and start, oh, well, actually, I missed a beat there and, oh, I dropped this in here. And, and then it becomes like a programmed drum track. Yeah, yeah. So it's, I know what you mean. Like, I, There's stuff that I hear and even... And, and punching in is a different story. Like it's still... It's still you're playing. You're still playing, yeah. And yeah. I've listened to stuff I've done in the past and I've gone, fuck, that punch in's 
the last thing I hit was a china and I punched in on a crash. <laughs> and it just suddenly cuts out. But yeah. no one in the world will notice except me. Yeah. And it's like, oh, if we could have Pro Tools it and done all this stuff and changed it. But fuck, why bother? As long as it, it is sounds what it all is right and to, the, to the people that have recorded it, yeah. I guess. I mean, it's each to each individual. I mean, if people want the machine head sound and they like that, good. If they like Celtic Frost, Venom, Bathory, good. Yeah. <laughs> but I prefer like a more raw, realistic, less digital, less clean, less processed type idea, really. Like just more raw and to the point and real playing and real essence of what it's all about in the first place. Before triggers existed, before any of that stuff even had anything to do with anything. And I've recorded with all sorts of different like styles of recording. Things that I didn't even understand. Like when you first go to studios and you're like, I have no idea what this guy's talking about. (laughs) But if you think it sounds good and... At the time, if the band thinks it sounds good, then you just got to go with what you feel at the time. But, like, that's one thing you just learn about recording is, like, the different formats and how this has been recorded and gating and, I don't know, all the technical stuff that I still really don't understand entirely how it really works. But, yeah, analog and digital and all that shit. All that fucking, <laughs> all that fucking technical shit. <laughs> yeah, I don't fully understand it, but as long as the recording's done the way the band wants it, yeah, it's all good. What's the worst drum kit you've ever recorded on? <sighs> the worst drum kit. It's probably when we did the damage demo, and it was a Tama Rockstar. Oh yeah, yeah, they're not <laughs> so good. Those drum kits. Yeah, right. Oh, the drum sound had come out all right, but like the actual. That's just an entry-level Tama kit, eh? Yeah, it was just the, one of the first kits I actually had. It was like, just like this Tama Rockstar. It was like, uh, I think at the time, probably cost about, in the late 80s, probably about 1000 bucks or something. I can't really remember now. Kind of like your Pearl Exports and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was like a Pearl Export, except for Pearl's a lot better than Tama. Yeah, my first personal export. Pretty good. Yeah. Louis, Louis still plays an export. Yeah, they're his, good. His always sounds good. If I guess if you're good at tuning a kit, mm. you know what you're doing. Yeah, they do sound good. You put new heads on them and they sound great. They're really good all-round drum kits. The old ones, the new ones, whatever. All Pearl drums. Endorsements, <laughs> hey? Pearl endorsements, yes. All that helps. But they're good. Yeah, they're really good. I've got the Pearl um, Masters uh, Premium. Super nice drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> Zildjian cymbals. How do you go about teeing stuff like endorsements up? Is it sort of um, work or they get in touch with you or you put applications in or how's that? Oh, going? I've had a few different endorsements over the years. Like I had Sonor and Sabian and uh, Yamaha and Paste and uh, you, just, you just put an application in, say this is what I'm doing, if you like it and if they get back to you, that's good. If they don't, try someone else. If, if you're into the brands, like there's a couple other um brands i got talking to but i ended up um with the uh pearl and zildjian they're pretty cool and does that help you out more when you're at home playing local shows and recording or on the road as well everywhere yeah like the american tour we just did we just hooked up like a pearl drum kit from the start of the tour used the same kit for the whole tour 
a Pearl Masters recording kit that I got. It was a gold sparkle kit, which was pretty strange. But uh, they sound really good and they do the job. And Pearl's the biggest drum brand in the world. Well, they're the biggest company that makes drums. They've always been at the top of the pile. And then I think it's like Tama and then probably one of the European drum brands. The consumables like your sticks and cymbals are probably like the real um, thing that saves your coin, I guess, and really worthwhile, huh? Zildjian sticks. Oh, yeah. How do they go? Good. Yeah. Good sticks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, good sticks. And um, Remo heads. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful Remo heads. Yeah. Oh, they've always, they're always good. They've always been good heads. Like the um, white coated uh, emperors. Emperors, I think they are. Yeah, they, they give you that natural old school Slayer Tom sound. So you've got coated heads then across? Oh, at the moment I've been using clear ones, but I prefer the. Uh, Coated ones. Yeah, I've never skinned my kit in coated heads. I don't think anyway. Maybe I back in the day. Got on them and they got this like 80s type Slayer, like Rain and Blood, South of Heaven type drum sound. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool. And what about going on the road as a drummer? It's obviously probably a lot tougher than uh, a vocalist, for example. Do you pra- pack pretty light and just use a lot of support bands gear when you're out there? Or how does that work? Um... Well, with most of the touring, you try and take your own stuff, but um, some of the gigs you can't get a drum kit there. You've got to use whatever you've got access to from a support band or another band or a back line or whatever. But um, majority of it is you try and get the pearl or you try and get what you can. Um, sometimes I've played some kits in the last year that have been... Horrible. The worst drum. Very kids. recently, actually. Yeah, even last year, like in Europe with Hobbs, um, some of the worst drum kits I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's tough when that happens too, especially your snares. Like, I, I usually travel with a snare, but at times when you can't get it in the luggage allowance and all that, it's just a, a nightmarish thing. You hope someone there's got one you can borrow. Or Yeah, I've only maybe played a couple of shows without my own snare. Yeah, me too. It's only been a couple. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. It's not a good feeling. Um, I try and take the snare to nearly every every show. It's without that, you feel like you're committing sort of suicide. Yeah, because you like don't know what you're going to get, and you don't know whether it's going to be nice and sort of snappy, blasting when the things like it that hammersonic one where I hit it. I hadn't had a chance to actually try it out because he got rushed on stage and the stick almost hit me in the head. Like, it was so bouncy. Yeah, because the, the, oh, the, the head was Lord. actually... Oh, I saw that it was tuned right up because the head, if you actually took the head off, it'd be so dipped and so worn out. Those heads looked like they were about 15 years old. Yeah. <laughs> they, they were not good. They were shit. <laughs> and it was just like, ah, oh, damn it, why didn't I put that... Biggest show of your life. Yeah, true. Yeah, (laughs) 10,000 people. I'm hitting myself in the face with my sticks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that doesn't help, does it? (laughs) But, you know, whatever. You guys are pretty gnarly at that. Yeah, I ended up using someone else's snare too. Yeah, Henry's, eh? Yeah, Henry's snare. Yeah, he's got a nice snare drum. Um, um, Yeah. Guns too. Yeah, big guns. Yeah, but... um, for a show like that, you expect the gear there to be a lot better, considering that's 
tens of thousands of people there. Bit strange. Mm. Oh, well, oh. Lucky you're a pro. You reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I reckon of the day, like yourself and Louis, just on point. It was, yeah, pretty wicked to see. Appreciate that. Aussies, legends. I think I was too tired to even understand what I was actually doing that day. <laughs> that was the 50th show of the tour. 60, like basically 50 gigs in 60 days. So I didn't know what I was, where I was or what I was doing really. It was just natural, uh, almost robotic, just on it. That's brewed away. That US tour sounds like it was pretty massive um, yeah. and pretty exhausting and takes its toll. Um, so I guess, yeah, that's something that people need to be aware of if they're looking at doing that themselves. It's not all fun and games. It's a lot of probably sleeping on the road and I don't know putting up yep. some, some crazy stuff. Um, but, I mean, all in all, it's still probably a good time, I wouldn't doubt. So it's got its ups and downs. Oh, I think it's like everything, you know, like not every day is perfect. Um, and your energy levels and your the way you feel on a day-to-day basis changes every day, really. Like some days you feel better and other days you don't. It's just some days are harder than others. <laughs> if you sleep properly or if you don't, um, affects everything really Or if you're eating shit food Like you go to the States And it's all about burger joints every day <laughs> And road stops every single day So you got to try and figure out ways to look after yourself somehow And it's not easy to do When you've got limited options at the time And you're there and it's like well, What do you do? It's got to do Whatever it takes. Your style is fucking physical on the kit. So you've got to be pretty well, like, yeah. nourished and Yeah, I got a, bit, got a bit sick. So a few couple of weeks into it and it was um, interesting to try and balance being sick and drumming like that on a day-to-day basis. Like, um, And it was pretty cold over there too. So, like, I was battling the whole illness and drumming and... Coming off the drums, cold and sweaty and, oh, yeah, a few things like that. But, yeah, touring is a um, whole different thing, really, when you start getting into that and just day-to-day sort of stuff like that. It's pretty intense. I mean, yeah, not only the US one. I mean, with King Parrot, you guys have been just flat out for, for a few years now, it seems, just non-stop. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's been a, a few crazy video clips now come out. You've been a very good actor, I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a- actually natural. <laughs> that was, you didn't That's know you were being acting. filmed. No, I was actually really, really, uh, I don't know, physically that day I wasn't feeling very good and um, it just so happened to come out that they needed me to be a specific way and it actually happened like that <laughs> naturally. <laughs> and That's 100% the truth. Like that was the way it happened. So I was like, oh, well, it's it's true. No acting skills. <laughs> <laughs> I can't act <laughs> Get an acting agent or something like that Put yourself out there Yeah You'll be in Home and Away soon Oh yeah, beautiful <laughs> Wonder what they'll cast me as a fucking criminal <laughs> Probably A Yabby Creek rock and roll band <laughs> <laughs> Yabby Creek Looking forward to that Cool, we'll, um, yeah, we'll get wrapping it up now Thanks heaps um, But maybe just lastly if you wouldn't mind Just giving us a big Um Big, I don't know what I was about to say there, but perhaps maybe just a few of the milestones in your career, perhaps um, the work that you're most proud of or some really awesome shows in particular that have stood out? Uh, there's quite a few things, I guess, that stand out. I think 
playing with Morbid Angel in 96, damaged. Where that was, was that like, one? That was uh, Canberra and Sydney. Mad. Played like three or four shows with Morbid Angel and uh, was absolutely thrilled to be there, like seeing the whole thing and just being part of the actual gig itself. Yeah. Uh, things like the first time we ever played with an international band, we played Fear Factory in 93. And then we played with them in 99 and the popularity of Fear Factory and Damaged at the time, 99, it was the obsolete tour. Yeah. There was like two and a half thousand people at the two shows in Melbourne. There was an underage show and overage show. And then there was like um, a show in Adelaide as well. And that was probably the height of Fear Factory's popularity. But like to play with them, them like from 93 and then again 99. Was uh it was pretty cool, yeah. It was going off its head, like the whole vibe for both the bands and the way it was perceived. Um, playing with Sepultura in two thousand three, even though the band had lost a lot of popularity, but it was still like playing with Sepultura. I was like, wow, it's pretty. Uh, I don't know that that meant a lot to me, like because I was right into Igor's drumming and saw a Rise tour in ninety two, and like Beneath the Remains was like. One of the best thrash metal albums ever. So to play with Sepultura was great. Deicide Tour 2006, just to play with Deicide and meet them and, you know, do that whole tour was great. There's a whole bunch of things like small things, bigger things, like doing the uh, gigs with Attila from Mayhem with the Grave Temple and the Sun guys. That was an honour. Um just collaborating with lots of different musicians and tons of different styles. And there's even a couple of bands I haven't really ever mentioned before that I played with. I did like an album with like a old school type punk hardcore band I did for about a year and a half, did some shows, but it was all pretty low key. Suicide Bombers, stuff like that. Just being able to continue, you know, doing it in whatever capacity, you know, whether it's just recording or project or one-off gigs or you know like i did a one-off gig at the start of the year with guys from um the new suicide black metal band i did mutilate him and um burial chamber orchestra which is another band i did and terrorist members and all this that was called plasmodium vivax it's like a fucked up um black metal hybrid type um extreme metal noise thing we did a gig. It was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty intense stuff. Sick. Yeah. So all these different things, like whether it's playing to ten people or playing at Jakarta to twenty five thousand people or whatever, but that Jakarta thing blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> that was like, I can't believe, like I'm sitting here and playing in front of that many people. But yeah, it was, and the caliber of the bands we we're playing with as well, Morbid Angel and Belfagor and. Origin and I don't know, it was pretty mind blowing. Creator and um, yeah, just meeting these people and over the years. And I think anybody that goes out and does it, like you guys, you know, understanding what it's like to go out and actually see this stuff, do it and be around it, it's pretty cool when you do it. Some of it's really cool, some of it's hard, some of it's like being you feel like you haven't achieved what you wanted to achieve sometimes. But I guess that's just the way it goes. It's not everything's perfect, so it's just a 
got to put it out there, don't you? I guess like nearly only a couple of years off, three decades. Gave it a red hot shot. <laughs> <laughs> I've done a few things, but like I don't know. I don't take any of that shit for granted ever, so, yeah. Good stuff, man. You've done a, a real awesome job and, yeah, it's been fucking awesome to chat to you today. Thank you We're obviously much, massive fans gentlemen. of everything you've done, so it's a privilege to, um, of course, it. watch you play so much and get to catch up so often, so real awesome. Thank Cheers you again. very much. And I guess we'll see you at um, Adelaide, New Fowlers, Dead. New Dead Festival. New Dead Festival, five. 31st of May, uh, with a whole bunch of... Aussie metal bands, Truth Corroded guys put that on, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Two power metal bands, maybe you can get, could be a chance to get involved and yeah. uh, power metal power tick that music. off the list. Why power not, music. eh? Yeah. <laughs> Got <laughs> to be done. Yeah, talk to Jim about that. He will hook you up for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Do I need references? <laughs> uh, yeah, full CV. Okay, all right. I'll put it on. Step one must have played in a power metal band before. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Shit. <laughs> I know what man of war is. <laughs> Butless chaps. Uh, <laughs> good stuff. Let's stop pressing record. I mean, press stop. But yeah. That's the one. You got to catch a plane. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers, kids. Cheers. Oh, my God.